In science fiction, the keys to having a good kickoff to a franchise are setting a tone and some solid world building. The key to putting a halt to that franchise is to take all that you've built up, go a completely different direction, and hope that no one notices. Oh, we noticed. But in the case of the Chronicles of Riddick, we can overlook all of that because in truth, it's not that bad. Welcome, welcome, welcome to It's Not That Bad, the podcast that looks for A, great, and B, movies. And I'm not going to lie, when this movie that we're about to talk about was pitched to me, it's like, hey, you know what? I've never actually watched a single movie in the Riddick franchise, which is personally a little shocking because I'm a massive sci-fi geek. So when Colin Munch hopped on Twitter and said, hey, have you ever watched the Chronicles of Riddick? I'm like, no, I looked it up and all of a sudden I'm like, now I want to go to there. And joining the show for the first time is Colin Munch. Colin, welcome to the show. How are you? How are you, Ben? I'm doing great and I am thrilled to be here, especially talking about this franchise. So what is it about the Chronicles of Riddick that made you want to pitch this film? It's that this movie... While, yes, it's bad, it's, it's not, it, it doesn't deserve like the, the, the schlock that it gets from people. It doesn't deserve like the, the rating that it gets from people. It, it's, yeah, it's, it's a dumb science fiction movie, but it's no worse than so many other movies that people rate much more highly. And it is a complete Vin Diesel vanity project, which I, I just cannot wait to get into. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, if you're describing this as dumb science fiction movie, you have come to the right place. That, that's kind of my jam. And so I'm, I'm really happy to go down this road. But before we talk about the Chronicles of Riddick, it is time to take this, as you say, Vin Diesel vanity project and trailerize it. He is the last of his kind. A man considered a criminal by some, a hero to others, and feared by those who wish to seek to enslave the world. No, it's not Doctor Who. We aren't that lucky. The voice of Groot goes from Diesel to Unleaded in the sequel to Paint Black, The Chronicles of Riddick. The man who can't stand the light brings a dark mood in this 180 shift in tone from its predecessor making us all wish Hollywood could learn to leave well enough alone. It's a film that borrows the feel from so many other movies in a way that makes you wish that you watched those movies instead. The Chronicles of Riddick, rated R, or PG-13. Depends on which one you watched. That was fantastic. <laughs> in all so, honesty, it actually isn't that bad. I, I, mean, I know I recognize I just said the title of the show, but really, there's a lot to talk about about this film, but let's do the breakdown of this one here. This film stars, uh, returning from the original Pitch Black, Vin Diesel and Keith David, uh, but also new to the franchise, Tandy Newton, Carl Urban, Colm Fior, and, and I can't believe I'm saying this about a science fiction film, Dame Judy Dench, which is kind of surprised Judy me. Dench. <laughs> Judy Dench. Judy Dench. Judy Dench in his sci-fi film is worth at least ten critic points alone. I would say. <laughs> I mean, that there are mysteries out there in the universe. There, there's like, who's actually behind the Kennedy assassination? There's, you know, like who built the pyramids? I, I want to know more than most of those things what vin diesel said to judy dench to get her to be in this movie it's one of those those things that like i cannot believe she's in this like she brings so much gravitas and greatness to it just by the virtue of being dame judy dench but i i seriously cannot picture or comprehend what happened there <laughs> Aside from her being on the first season of Staged with David Tennant and Michael Sheen, this might be the greatest thing Judy Dench has ever done. So I'm I'm kind of putting it out there right now. I was a fan of this. However, there is an almost starring in this one here. If you watched Pitch Black and then watched this and you had that sense of what the 
is going on. Part of that might be the fact that the person who plays Jack, or at least now renamed as Kira, is not the same person as it was in the first film. Rihanna Griffith actually had to audition to reprise her very own role. And Vin Diesel was apparently like all like, no, no, you can do this, you can do this, but you just need to toughen up. She didn't toughen up. Alexa Davalos got the role. Also, Linus Roach, who plays the Purifier, actually auditioned for the role of Vako, which eventually went to Carl Urban. But David Tui, the director, thought he was a great purifier, and so we got that. Uh, this is written and directed by David Tui. Uh, he has directed all of the uh, all the Riddick films. He also directed The Arrival, starring Charlie Sheen. However, it was almost directed because under consideration for this film, imagine this film as directed by one of these names. Guillermo del Toro, David, what? David Cronenberg... <laughs> Alex Proyas, John Landis for some reason, and Peter Jackson. They were, according to IMDb, all under consideration, but instead they went back to the source, to the original David Tui. They, they went back to the OG David Tui. <laughs> exactly. Wait, now, Peter interestingly Jackson enough, and Guillermo del Toro? <laughs> I mean, Guillermo del Toro, I could actually see making sense. Cronenberg. I can see Guillermo del Toro. Absolutely. But Peter Jackson, like, that's crazy. It's it's the John (laughs) Landis that really throws it out there for me. I'm like, what? John Landis. I mean, don't get me wrong. These are all phenomenal directors, but John Landis doing the Chronicles of Riddick? Doing doing a a sci-fi follow-up to Pitch Black that bears little resemblance to pitch black uh, just <laughs> just following up on, on david we also want to point out that he also wrote the fugitive mm-hmm. and gi jane and Waterworld. yeah we're talking some i mean aside from Waterworld, we're talking some very very good films here um right but here's the interesting thing uh found this little nugget on imdb so after pitch black proved to be a success on dvd and i'm now quoting from imdb here Uh, Apparently, Universal became interested in making a sequel because when something makes money, Hollywood says, yes, I I want more of that. Um, So David Tui wrote the screenplays for three sequels. Three. He put them in separate leather binders and he gave them all to Universal with the key only for the first one. That's ballsy. That is so crazy. Wow. Now, keep in mind, too, There was a Riddick film that came out in 2013, and apparently, in development, is a film called Furia. It is the the story of when Riddick finds his homeworld. It's in development. This is probably the third folder that was handed to them. I am fascinated by this. Like, who hands them three folders, says, okay... First taste is free, but you got to pay for the other two. But you got to pay me to unlock one of these folders to get these Riddick sequels. This this feels like like let's make a deal in Hollywood, right? You have three folders Absolutely. and one key. What's in the box? <laughs> if you open the wrong folder, get, can you imagine the film they would have made? Um, oh dear God! This, this there's a there's a story in here that I, I want that movie made. That's fascinating. Um, but as most things Vin Diesel, uh, they're going to get not noticed by the Razzies here. And at the 25th annual Razzies, Vin Diesel was nominated for Worst Actor. He lost to George W. Bush for Fahrenheit 9-11. Also, oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> also, at the 2004 Stinker Movie Awards... Diesel was nominated for Worst Actor again. He lost to Ben Affleck for Jersey Girl and Surviving Christmas. And we've already defended Jersey Girl on this show. So, uh, you know, you know. But part of that probably affected the budget. According to IMDb, this film has a budget of $105 million. Domestically, it only grossed. 57.7 57.7 with a worldwide gross of almost 116 million. When it was released on the June 11th, 2004 weekend, it was up against Tough Company because number one, 
that week. For the second week, rightfully so, was Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Chronicles of Riddick debuted at number two with a take of $24 million. There were two other debuting movies out there that weekend that weren't going to come close. The Stepford Wives debuted at number five with $21 million. And Garfield the Movie nudged it out at number four with $21.7 million. But, I mean, that's a good weekend at the box office when you have the top six films, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, Chronicles of Riddick, Shrek 2 at number three, uh, Garfield, The Stepford Wives, and The Day After Tomorrow, which had $15.5 million in its third week. That's a lot of money at the box office. It's a, it's a good week. And Chronicles of Riddick debuted well, but I wonder how much of that is just based on the fact that Pitch Black really, truly and honestly, was one of those cult classic films. So I'm assuming that you saw both of them in the theater when they came out. I saw Chronicles of Riddick when it came out. I saw Pitch Black on like dvd or vhs it was one of those things that was passed around and like oh you've got to see this and i loved pitch black i still love pitch black and honestly it is a better movie Mm -hmm. but that's not to say that chronicles of riddick is horrible it's just it's not as good as pitch black but i did see chronicles of riddick in the theater Pitch Black is definitely one of those films that, you know, it it had that feel of something you were going to discover on DVD because it's not big. It's not splashy. It's very compact. It's almost like one of those, I almost want, want to call it a phone booth type film where everything happens in a very small area. And that kind of adds to like, it, it's, it's a tense movie. Like they did a lot with a little in that film and it worked this one we're gonna get to this in a little bit but this one went the completely opposite direction whereas pitch black was exactly the opposite direction yeah it (laughs) it was a very small film self-contained to the small cast in pitch black and then all of a sudden you have the entire universe at play and somehow dame judy dench in the sequel like how and and there's so much going on to the point of like this movie has if anything too many ideas like that there is there is too much that is happening in here <laughs> to to where you're like okay yeah i i can kind of follow what's happening but I, it's jarring and disorienting to watch this movie and that dar- jarring and disorienting feel probably led to the critic score which is why we are here uh over at metacritic this has a meta score of 38 The audience score for this film over on Rotten Tomatoes is 65%. The Tomatometer, 20. You have a 45% swing from audience to critic. And, you know, we've said it on this show before, where genre fiction tends to get a bad rap when it comes to critics. I mean, it takes a lot to blow a critic out of the water when it comes to traditional science fiction. I mean, you take a look at films like Valerian, which does actually qualify for this show. Uh, Tron Legacy uh, qualifies for this show. Um, These are good films, but critics traditionally look at, you know, especially science fiction and horror. They tend to kind of look at those with the side eye going, oh, I got to watch this kind of thing. So for the audience score, because really sci-fi is one of those genres for the audience, what is it about this film that made them actually appreciate this to the point of a 65% score? That's a good question. I mean, I don't know if 65% is quite accurate. Like if I were to rank this, I I might give it more of like a 58 or 59. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's okay. Like it's, it certainly doesn't deserve like the 20 that it gets from the critics. But I think the 60% comes from the things in this film that are super enjoyable, that it has a, an incredibly stacked cast. You've got Carl Urban before he's Carl Urban. You've got Thandie Newton before she's Thandie Newton. You've got, <laughs> you've got Keith David. You've got, you know, Vin Diesel doing his Vin Diesel thing. And a lot of these people absolutely know what movie they're in especially Sandy newton who is just swinging for the fences with this lady macbeth performance that she turns in 
with the I, I love that you say that everyone knows what they're doing. Judy Dench has said in, in an interview, she was quoted as saying that she didn't know much of what was going on in the story, but she had a good time filming it. So yes. I, I, I kind of <laughs> like that even more. She said she didn't know what was happening, like what the movie was about, but she had a good time making it and she thought the sets were nice. <laughs> Which that could be said about a lot of films that probably end up on this show. But let's get to the breakdown of this. And we have to talk about Bruno here. Richard Bruno Riddick as played by Vin Diesel. So what's, what's your take on the the transition from Riddick from Pitch Black to this film? It, it's purely Vin Diesel doing his thing in the early 2000s of Vin Diesel being like, oh, I'm going to be like, I'm going to by sheer force of will transform myself into a giant movie star. Like I'm going from the fast and the furious franchise to this, to whatever else I can. But this one, I think much more being his passion project, because if you know Vin Diesel, you know that he is like a not so closeted nerd. He, he loves science fiction. He loves fantasy. He is an ad like adamant D and D player. Apparently on the set of this movie, there was a D&D game going on between setups between Vin Diesel, Judy Dench, Carl Urban, and Sandy Newton. But, like, so this is just Vin Diesel saying, like, I, I was in this pitch black movie. I like this character. I like this world. I'm going to try to bring as much of this out as I can with this other movie starring the same character, and I'm just going to make it be me. It's it's just Vin Diesel being Vin Diesel in, in a way that is like enjoyable to a certain extent, but also you're just like, okay, you're, you're just Vin Diesel. I think the interesting thing about the transition is that, you know, as I watched pitch black and, and this is the interesting thing, like, cause I, I, I admit I had never seen any of the Riddick films before literally yesterday as I'm, as I'm, you know, preparing for the show. Cause I'm like, as I'm watching Chronicles of Rick and I watched it first, I'm like, this is a fascinating movie. There's a lot of really good world building here. There's, I have questions, but I mean, I, I love the scale and epicness of it. And then I watch Pitch Black. I'm like, this is a different franchise entirely. And as you're watching Pitch Black, the first film, you know, he's this, I, I can't even say anti-hero. He's just this... Um, this big question he's more mark. He's a horror character. Yeah. Like the monster he's like a monster at the beginning of Pitch Black. He's an enigma as far as the overall story goes. Um and I love the fact that be- you know, yes, he's doing his best to um you know to help out Jack kind of thing cuz you know what 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 you know, I mean, obviously, he's not a monster per se, um, especially. Right, with, he's, he's overtaken by the actual monsters that, that take over in that movie. Well, well yes, and, and the funny thing is, because of the um, the the questions about the the bounty hunter that's actually captured him that get, gets revealed in the film. By the way, we're going to spoil the crap out of these movies for you, but uh, Pitch Black is over twenty years old, and this film came out in two thousand four. So if you haven't seen it by now, uh, like I was, um, go ahead and watch them, but. Just before Warren, you you will this we're gonna spoil the crap out of it. Um, but it's like, you know, all of a sudden er- everyone's personality is in question except for uh for Imam played by Keith David and and of Jack. You don't know which way it's gonna go because they had zero problem killing off all these characters that would probably normally make it off the planet alive. Um so to see him actually to go through this and it left off at such a very interesting point now all of a sudden here he is he's on the run for more bounty hunters that kind of makes sense um but it's gone from being an enigma of a character to all of a sudden riddick is this you know bigger than life superhero um i you also have to think too that there might have been a little bit of vin diesel fatigue going on at the time and we've talked about this on this show and on my other show, Just Another Nerd Show, uh, especially with Dwayne Johnson, where there's so much of them all at the same time. 
right? You you mentioned it, Pitch Black and then Triple X and Fast and the Furious. Um, and there was even knockaround guys that came out before this. Um, I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> forgot about it or have blocked it out of your memory? One of the two. <laughs> A little of both, probably. <laughs> <laughs> it can be both. It can be both. But I mean, really, Vin Diesel in the early 2000s, he was absolutely everywhere and then after this film i mean there were a couple of films but it, it, it really felt like he kind of disappeared for a little bit and then of course the fast and furious became what it became um and and you have to wonder if you know a little bit of vin diesel fatigue affected the the critic score at this point you do and you also have to think that like this movie is like a such a jarring difference from pitch black. I mean, as you've already kind of mentioned it, it, like pitch black is like such a tight contained story with a bunch of like small characters. This movie is just like, Oh, you like that world. Let's take that world and do all of it. Let's, <laughs> let's just go <laughs> as far as we can with the very concept of this world. But even interestingly, I mean, uh, again, like there are some franchises, and I'm using air quotes as I say this here, where there are movies in, in it where you can tell it's a spec script and then they shoehorn something in. Uh, American Psycho 2 is not an American Psycho film. They just kind of, kind of shoehorn in a very, very, very loose sort of pseudo tie-in so they could put the American Psycho you know name on it and try and sell it off. Um, it should never have been listed as an American Psycho film. Uh, some of the Hellraiser films are like that, where it is very much a spec script, and then let's put Pinhead in there somehow. Um, this film, at least as far as the grand scheme of things, it still feels, while it is a much grander epic scale of a film, it at least still feels like it should be in that universe. And I think having Keith David return as a mom to kind of, you know, tie up that storyline and at least connect with the people who lived. I mean, having Keith David in anything, really, I'm not going to lie. I'm a big it, Keith David fan. Keith David at all is always a bonus to a movie, but but you're exactly right. Like, have, having Keith David to tie it back to the first movie, having even the character of Jack, although we quickly trans, like transfer Jack into being Kira and, and, like, bears little to no resemblance to the character of Jack, but the fact that he's still following up on these characters from the first movie gives us, you know, some tie to it, which, which feels good in a way that this movie also like is taking that world and expanding it, but it, it has us tied to the first film with these characters. Mm-hmm. I actually think that Keith David was better in this than he was in pitch black. I need, I need to put this out there. The mom in Pitch Black was very much almost a, um, uh, just basically a bunch of cliches of people of Muslim faith, right? And as as much as I love Keith David, I'm like, this feels odd. Um, here in Chronicles of Riddick, um, he feels like a much more grounded character. He doesn't feel like... Um, a stereotype, if you will. You're exactly right. Like he, he feels so much more real in Chronicles of Riddick because you're getting to see him with his family. You're getting to see him like actually protecting something beyond his faith. He's not just a, a stand-in for his faith, which he kind of is in the first movie, where it's like, oh, here's the character who's like the the definition of this character is that he's a Muslim. Like in in Chronicles of Riddick, there's like, oh, here's this guy, he's a Muslim, but he has a wife and he has a child and he's trying to protect them. And and he has this this debt that he owes to Riddick because Riddick saved his life. And it, like, he feels like such a more real and rounded character in Chronicles of Riddick. Mm-hmm. And I will say, and again, spoiler alert here, um, having Keith David die the way he did, it actually gives weight not to the motivation for uh, for Riddick. But it gives credence to the threat that the necromongers pose, not just to Helios Prime, but to the universe. Like, he needed to die in order for the necromongers to be the threat that they are. Yeah, and I mean, we had to see the necromongers, like, actually, 
do the thing that they're that they talk about, which is like to, you know, conquer conquer an entire world and convert everyone on that world into their you know twisted religion or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, as the necromongers were doing their their thing, how much did you have to withhold screaming out Borg? They're the Borg. <laughs> Oh, they are so much the Borg. It is. It's so wild how much they are the Borg. <laughs> but but while, while we're on that, I, um, the the Lord Marshal of the Necromongers is played by one of those character actors who's in a million things. A guy Colm named Colm Fiore. Fiore who, who just is in so much stuff. And, and I just... I challenge you to do something that is going to bring limitless joy and happiness into your life. Whenever you see Comfior in something, I just want you out loud to say, I have seen the underverse. (laughs) Like (laughs) Comfior will pop up in the West wing as, you know, a a guy who works for the state department. Just say, I have seen the underverse. Comfior will pop up as some other random character. Just out loud, every time you see Comfior pop up in something, say that, and you will just be delighted. I, I will say, he, I mean, he chews up the scenery every time he's on screen. Absolutely. Um, and one of the things I always find interesting about um, actors who have clearly taken the stage, as I'm sure he has in his past, when it comes to movie villains, I find that there are two two kind of paths that can go down. There is stage villain and screen villain. Screen villain is more, not necessarily a dialed back performance, but a performance that is basically built around where the camera angle is, uh, the mood that's being set at the time, the light. It's, it's, a, it's an almost atmospheric villain. Stage villain is I'm going to be very loud and very obviously the bad guy. And if you go back to like the Sylvester Stallone Judge Dredd, Armand Asante is, as as Rico, is so much a stage villain so as stage opposed villainy. to a screen villain. Yeah. yeah. you know, I'm, Heath Ledger <laughs> as the Joker. That was screen villain, very much so, because there was a lot of, you know, quick changes, subtle nods, all this kind of stuff. Like, you didn't know which way he was going to go, but a lot of it was based on how he was framed and how, you know, the the, the scene in general. Colm Fiore, just total stage villain in this. But I kind of enjoy it, because as we got to see the Necromongers, um, you know, we, we joked around about uh, the Necromongers basically being Borg. But after they take over Helios Prime and everyone is kind of brought into that room, I, I, I got some heavy, heavy Dune vibes from watching this scene. I, like, as you're watching this, what was your thought on the Necromongers as a whole? Like, uh, uh, Dune is one of those blind spots for me in science fiction. I, I've, I've never actually seen or read it. So to me, it was very much the Borg like like we had already talked about it it was very much like okay here come this like overwhelming force that's going to you know come through and like absolutely strip everything from your planet and make you into them and it's like i really like them as this existential threat it's it's wild that we go so late into the movie before we establish like that they are the threat of the movie (laughs) but i I, I still really like them. I, I like Comfior chewing the scenery. I like Carl, Ar- Carl Urban. I love Sandy Newton, who's also just chewing the scenery as much as she possibly can. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think the thing with the Necromongers is, and and you know, we'll, we'll get to Carl Urban and, and Sandy Newton in a second here, but the thing with the Necromongers is there's clearly a hierarchy there's clearly a much grander story that can be told about them because you have a lot of not necessarily political infighting but definitely a lot of almost game of thrones-esque power struggle internal power the the, the entire line of you keep what you kill there is such a rich story that could be told of the necromongers that as i'm watching the chronicles of reddick i'm like i can only imagine the grandness of this franchise if this movie came first if pitch black didn't exist and this movie was there like right out on first street people would be like this is a big universe and i really like this like 
I, I think it introduced the Necromongers in a very interesting way. I mean, there are aspects of Thanos in here as well, as far as like trying to, you know, take over the everything. But I mean, I, I just wish we could explore more of that and spend, instead of spending so much time on this prison planet, uh, just focused on Riddick. I wanted to know more about them. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Carl Urban and Thandie Newton, because of the dynamic between the two, this is where that Game of Thrones... Um, political maneuvering comes into play because the two of them really were almost like a self-contained unit trying to usurp power in their own way. Um, but as you're watching this, I mean, you've been talking about Thandie Newton basically since we started the show. And I will say, you're right. She dances in this. Uh, she seemed to be having a ton of fun here. She's having so much fun. Like, you can tell that, like, I mean, I, it's kind of what I already said, that she knows exactly what movie she's at, she's in. And she's like, okay, I'm just going to, I'm going to go for it. Like, this is going to be this, this weird sci-fi movie with this. I mean, exactly like you were talking about, like the, the necromongers are the thing that's interesting about it. And I am part of the political intrigue of this. I, I'm literally playing a character who is Lady Macbeth. So let me just go whole hog and and just act like <laughs> acting act in this movie as as Lady Macbeth. I mean, as I'm watching her, you know, two, two things come to mind. First one is if if this movie was made today, uh, that role is played by Zoe Saldana. You could very much see Absolutely. how yes. how that whole Gamora vibe is kind of put into this. But to the same token as well, watching this, you tell me Thandie Newton wouldn't have made a wonderful Catwoman in that era. She would have made such a good Catwoman in that era. That that's a, I did not even think of that. But I also love the idea that you just brought up of imagining this movie made at a different time, because that was something that came to my mind because this, this movie is it's, it's schlock. It's kind of, you know, like not necessarily cheaply made, but it it looks cheap and it's, you know, it's made 
for the ego of this person. It's it kind of reminds me of a canon movie. Like so, if, oh. if this movie had made <laughs> had been made in 1986, it would have been a canon movie, and it probably would have starred like either like Chuck Norris or Jean Claude Van Damme. I think Jean Claude Van Damme would have been the better choice. But just imagine this movie produced by Menachem Golan and starring Jean Claude Van Damme coming out in 1986. <laughs> The thing is, though, I mean, say what you will about canon films, and I have said a lot about canon films on this podcast over the past, you know, over a year. Um, but you go back and you take a look at Masters of the Universe, um, and as campy as that film is, there is a deliciousness to the villain, but there's also, I mean, the, the girl who plays Evil Lynn in that one is is phenomenal. There's a lot of th- of Evil Lynn from Masters of the Universe in Lady Vako is played by Thanny Newton, where it, there's one hundred percent. That's and, exactly what I'm saying. Yeah, and, and again, as, as much as you want to say about Masters of the Universe, but the Castle Grayskull setting, like the scenery in that, the set design of that, it's huge. It's it's like you know Flash Gordon from 1980 with Sam J. Jones. That that Ming's throne room is a glorious set and you know say what you will about the 2004 cgi in the space battles and all that kind of stuff but i mean it didn't feel like bad cgi to me like some of the films of that time um like even green lantern looked way worse than this this was moody um i think the darkness helped hide some of the cgi as far as far as the necromongers and their ships go but it was stylishly done. I, I I didn't hate this at all. Yeah, I mean, like the, the CGI, like no CGI ages well, especially CGI from like the early two thousands. But I mean, it it looks okay, and it's because it's backed up by like such good practical stuff. I mean, again, the sets, like the actual huge practical real sets that are built in this movie, are fantastic. They've got this crazy, spooky aesthetic to them, and they it it all works. Like we've already gotten to this, and I'm sure we'll get back to it. But the the problem is that we don't spend enough time with the necromongers. We spend too much time with the prison planet. Hmm. I, I I think we also didn't spend enough time in really discovering Vako as played by Carl Urban. Now, look, you 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 yourself had mentioned this, right? I mean, despite the fact that he was in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, I mean, this is pre-Star Trek Carl Urban. This is pre-Judge Dredd Carl Urban. Although, watching him early on in this film, you could see where, you know, why they'd say, oh, no, he'll be, he'll be a good Judge Dredd. Um, this is pre-The Boys Carl Urban. Um, but the problem is, though, his motivation in this isn't really explored so much it's almost like he's a tool for lady vako as far as gaining power amongst the necromongers um carl urban unfortunately his character development is hey we're the baddies yes (laughs) carl urban is just like i i am the dutiful soldier i'm the bad guy i i love my wife my wife is super ambitious my wife wants me to become the the new head of the bad guys (laughs) Well, and that's and, his entire character. I mean, you saw a little bit of it at the at the beginning as they're as they're bringing all these people in, and and Danny Newton is, you know, kind of being somewhat flirtatious to to other people and all that, and um, you know, he mentions something about her ambition kind of thing, and she's like, "Yo, you're my only ambition, husband," kind of thing. And it's like, "Oh, this this is an interesting dynamic. I want more of these characters. I really, really do." Like. Carl Urban as as Vako needs to be explored more. I I, I just I haven't seen the the twenty. I think it was like released in twenty thirteen. I haven't seen that Riddick. Apparently they go back to the uh the the pitch black planet there. So uh, I but I want more of this. There's a lot to unpack out of this world building. I need more of it. I have to be honest, as as much as I do enjoy this franchise and I'm a defender of this film, I also have not seen Riddick. I have not seen the, the 2013 movie. Okay, we have to now talk about Dame Judi Dench, we which 
A, I can't believe we're talking about a movie with Judy Dench on this show, considering what movies qualify for this podcast. Um, you, you said it best. Like, she brings so much gravitas uh, to Arion, the elemental in this. Um, like, I, I don't know if you needed someone of that caliber, but apparently Vin Diesel, like, like petitioned hard to get her on to the point of like every day in her in her dressing room or whatever there were like you know multiple bouquets of flowers on like like they Vin Diesel fought to get her on this film and I think the film is actually that much better for it yeah because also like yeah he fights so hard to get her but then he's smart enough once he has her to know to use her to full advantage so if we're going to have some you know voiceover to try and explain the boatload of exposition that is required for this film we're going to have judy dench do that because we've got judy dench (laughs) and and there's the thing you know if you have some of that caliber let them be regal let them be just you know almost a the fact that apparently her dress was made out of crushed up swarsovsky crystals like like you you clearly I, but but to the same token as well, I, I, again, draw parallels to Masters of the Universe, right? Uh, there, there's that, uh, and I can't remember the character name, but she's trapped in Grayskull while He-Man is, is stuck on Earth kind of thing. Um, this is that kind of character. I just wish it was explored a little bit more why the Elementals were so afraid of the necromongers why what they knew about riddick and his species like arion knows a lot she doesn't say much about what she knows we know that she has concerns about it again we need more that's kind of the entire problem with this movie is that it's that it's got like some really fun good world building around it but it's all kind of nibbling at the edges of this world. Like nothing ever gets fully explained or fully developed. Like we, we never actually like dive into anything aside from maybe a little bit, the the necromongers, but not really even enough. It's all just like, Hey, here's some, a world that, that looks kind of cool. Let's move on to the next thing. And you're so intrigued by the world that they're, halfway setting up that you want like more of it but this movie just can't quite this movie in this entire franchise kind of can't quite deliver on the promise not not to say that that's that bad because you can enjoy like looking at these sets and these characters and like it it being like a fun dumb science fiction romp but it it's what's disappointing about it is that you want more from it mm-hmm um and, and the funny thing is, I mean, you say fun, dumb science fiction romp. Um, I, I don't know if I'd call it call it a dumb romp, though. Fun, definitely. Um, but I think the dumb is kind of, uh, you know, erased away by, by actors like Linus Roche, who plays the Purifier. Here's a guy who, in his limited screen time, was able to develop so much, so many questions about his motivation, about the hold of the necromongers once the conversion has taken place, once the, you know, when, once the pledge to the necromonger way has been, and you know, his when he dies, his death scene is incredibly moving and powerful, and like he's got the like it's 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 crazy like how much this guy brings to this this death scene in this movie. Mm-hmm. And apparently some of that was actually improv. Like that's a, he brought that to, to the table here, especially the line. Uh, I've done unbelievable things in the name of a faith that was never my own. That was never my own. Yeah. Like, um, like hit that soliloquy as he's about to walk out into the, the, the burning sun. Apparently he wanted to kind of have this be his Rutger Hauer from Blade Runner death scene. And it sticks the landing so well to the point of the purifier, maybe one of the more interesting necromongers of the whole thing. Uh, and he's not even really in charge. 
Yeah, he's he's like a, a third tier character within the power structure there, but he's the most like intriguing character a lot because of these questions that he brings. Like even earlier, he's asking Falco, like, "Have you ever like? Do you ever have doubts?" Like, do you ever, like, have doubts about the Lord Commander, about our mission and all this stuff? And Falco just being the soldier is like, if you're trying to test me, all you're doing is testing my patience. But you get a sense from the from him that it's like, no, he's not testing you. He really doesn't believe in this. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, every evil army has to have a chink in the armor, and, you know, for, in order for the hero to become victorious. Purifier is definitely that chink of the armor. He's the he's the doubt in the belief system of the Necromongers, and it was just played absolutely beautifully. Let's move on away from the Necromongers to Alexa Davalos, who who takes over the role of Jack slash Kira and is in that prison planet. Um, I, I have questions here. Because as I as I'm watching <laughs> as I'm watching Pitch Black, and it has nothing to do with with the actor change at all. I, I think Alexa Devalos ho- uh, had a great great role in this. I know she kind of patterned, uh, you know, Kira slash Jack after Amy Lee and Evanescence. And if you think about 2004, yeah, that's a good way to go. Um, but the whole thing was that you know he, she was mad at him because you know that you know he left them behind. Am, am I missing something here? No, no, it, it, the part where the movie like starts to not work is when we go to, when he finally tries to track down Jack and he goes to the prison planet and, and it's like, he's locked in the prison. And like, this is where they're trying to tie it into the Chronicles of Riddick video game which it came out, but I believe came out between pitch black and Chronicles of Riddick, where it's like uh Riddick, like escape from butcher Bay where like, okay, well we have to get like Riddick into a prison and he has to break out of a prison. And it's, but the fact that like Jack is there and she's mad at him because like he abandoned them. But it, it, so she went to prison for like this, that, and the other, she signed up with a group of mercenaries. Like none of this stuff, adds up or makes sense mm-hmm. it's it, now i it's I, the part I, where the movie falls apart i do recognize that there was the uh, the video short there uh chronicles over dark fury that was released and it was uh, escape from butcher bay was the video game you're talking about there but yeah like you know because i watched this in reverse order it, there was a lot of story to to backstory to jack that i loved the fact that i was questioning the morality of Riddick and then I watched Pitch Black I'm like but but he saved her what what happened in between I mean I I get that that you know that conflict helps a little bit but it did leave me with more questions than I had answers um and it's a shame because I love what Alexa Devalos did with Kira and the fact that you know her anger towards Riddick put Riddick's motives in question, but to the same token as well, you know, we also know that Kira has become a very damaged person while, you know, before basically what, what it took to get her into that prison. Like it's, you know, there's a lot more. I keep, I keep finding myself, myself saying I want more. I think I basically asking for a Chronicles of Riddick TV series. I think that would have been the way to go. I think that's exactly the problem is that this should be this universe, like this character, all this lends itself better to a TV series than it does to a film franchise, because it's so much about the world building. It's so much about like this character that it would be better served by a whole bunch of short stories than it is by, you know, a handful of longer stories. Mm -hmm. And, and that's the thing, like this movie on its own, like put pitch black aside, put all the, 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 the precursor stuff aside. There's wonderful world building in here. You have uh, an enemy that is a galactic universal threat. 
um, not because of their technology and their and their might, but because of their belief system. And when you have an enemy that believes so strong in their cause, it's hard to defeat them. You have chinks in the armor, as proven by the purifier. Uh, you have uh, chinks in the hierarchy, as proven by the Vakos. Um, I, I wanted more world building. The action stuff, the you know Riddick's, you know subsequent, you know getting stuck in this prison and then the the subsequent getting out of it, like that's fun action. But it, it, it took away from the grander, you know, the grander threat to the universe. I mean, that, that prison thing, that's one episode of a series. Now, Absolutely. M- meanwhile. The, like, the, yeah, Riddick, like on the ice planet, you know, escaping from the mercenaries is like an episode of the series. There's like him we could have like whole episodes of the series that are just about the Negromongers. It's, it's so much more a, a TV series than it is a movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't, I don't know if it exists out there, but if there was ever a Riddick novel series where it explored, like where you had the room to explore the, 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 the world and the ideals and the hierarchy of the Necromongers um, of this threat that, that basically, and the reason why they're so afraid of Vin Diesel and his kind, like the, the, the whole, why are the Furians so, so feared by them that that part's unexplored too. Other than the, the prophecy, other than that, the, the Lord Marshall, like went to see some like clairvoyant or seer who told him that he would be killed by a furian so like that that's why he's trying to eliminate the furian race and why there's this this fear of the furians but yeah we there's so much more room for expansion there also the the whole scene where the these you know random all-knowing all-seeing female voice caskets come out and basically start to start to explain you know know, kill kill the fury and kill the riddick kill the riddick i'm like oh good we've switched to minority report okay no problem Um, (laughs) yes i mean yes obviously we know that there are only so many stories in the world and you are going to find similarities to other films no matter what this felt like a lot of a lot of good parts that are pulled from different different franchises and different movies put into a much larger world um i mean yes admittedly if you sit there and point at the things and go oh this is that this is that this is that it's not going to feel like an original movie but really there really there is no such thing as a completely original film um i think this one does well though in the world building aspect however that being said there's one one cast member i want to boot off the island here and that is Nick Chinlin is played by Tombs. Yes. <laughs> oh, sorry, Nick Chinlin playing Tombs. That was played by Tombs. Nick Chinlin as Tombs. Yeah, yes. exactly. Um, there's a lot of... I, I keep also thinking about the first Thor film. And that being said, if Richard Branagh ever directed a Chronicles of Riddick series with the Necromongers, he'd be the perfect director in order to be able to flush out that kind of backstory of that race but tombs just feels almost that that very early to mid 2000s over the top bad guy character that you just can't wait to you know for him to get his comeuppance yeah he you know what he is he's the exact same character that he plays in ultraviolet which i I don't know if you've had the misfortune of seeing ultraviolet but it's a mila jovovich like movie where he is the bad guy in this dystopian future, but it's, it's, he is this absolute two dimensional, like he's the bad guy mm-hmm. type of character. I, I'm um, sure one day we're going to have Aeon Flux and Ultraviolet in the same show. Cause isn't it basically the same film? I have not seen Aeon Flux, but, but I have, I've heard about Aeon Flux. And so from what I have heard of, of Aaron Aeon Flux, it is very much like Ultraviolet. Mm-hmm. Just, Maybe Aeon Flux is the better version of Ultraviolet. <laughs> at least at least the one with the more complete backstory, because, of course, there was the Aeon Flux uh, MTV animated series that was out before that. So there's history. But, but yeah, Tombs just felt tonally out of place with 
every single other character, no matter where they were in this universe. Yeah. It's a character who just doesn't work. Oh, Nick Chinland. And and I don't, I don't think it's him per se. It's, It's one of the things where at some point the director has to look at this and go, yeah, can you, Dial it back a little bit. Although I, I do appreciate the fact that you, I mean, he's a mercenary. He's a mercenary with apparently a very, uh, you know, Star Trek redshirt type crew where he can just go and get, you know, a couple of extra thugs whenever he loses the last ones. Um, you want him to be a bit more slimy and smarmy and all that. Um, but the difference here is that you had you know, a, a a really good bounty hunter, even though he didn't make it out alive in the first pitch black film, you know, that performance worked really, really well, but this one just felt a little too over the top. I don't know. Like if, 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 and I think remember it was James in the first one, if James had made it alive, I would have loved to have seen him here. I just love pointing out these, these random connections, but like, um, James in in Pitch Black, like that actor also plays the bad guy in Too Fast, Too Furious, which is the only Fast and the Furious movie not to star Vin Diesel. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry, it's Johns, by the way, not James. It's William J. Johns. Yeah, no, is Johns. The, yeah. Yes, Johns. But, but yes, that actor also is the bad guy in Too Fast, Too Furious. Um, Nick Chitland is in a million things, like a lot of them playing exactly the same character he's playing in this or playing in, you know, uh, ultraviolet, playing like the smarmy, you know, confident bad guy. But my favorite thing that Nick Chitland has ever been in is Gilmore Girls. I can't believe we're going from Chronicles of Riddick to Gilmore Girls, but here we are. Um. (laughs) Yes, yes. Nick Chitland is in episode two of Gilmore Girls, where he plays like the dad of one of the other like girls who goes to Chilton, like the prep school. Like I guess Amy Sherman Palladino just thought he was like hunky looking and would be like a nice, like potential romantic interest for Lorelai, even though nothing ever comes of it. Like there's like the one scene where Nick Chitland is like another dad at, at uh, Chilton who is hitting on Lorelai as she drops off Rory at school. Uh, we've tu- we've turned into a Gilmore Girls episode. Okay, no problem. That's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> that, I, I love, I love I, I the fact to... that that's your reference on this one. Too. <laughs> Just because of my wife, I have to tie things to Gilmore Girls whenever I can. No, I, you know what? I mean, tr- trust me. I'm glad I'm not doing this podcast. Say ten years ago, otherwise everything would be well. There's there's this voice in Paw Patrol. No, um. <laughs> <laughs> oh that, that that's my life right now except it like it's gone from paw patrol to blues clues to coco melons so. yeah when when the scariest thing as a parent is waking up at five o'clock in the morning and your kid is beside your bed with a remote control saying paw patrol um yeah before yeah. coffee <laughs> when it's when it's this morning and it's 7 a.m and your son is saying coco melon coco melon you're like oh, okay okay at, at, at some point you'll be able to look at the kid and go did you bring coffee no the no cocoa milk uh, no but here's the interesting thing in uh, the, the current media landscape when you have all of these streaming services and a lot of them are looking for franchises to build upon i mean you had paramount uh pushing the halo series which i think was actually pretty well done um prime video right now is now pushing the peripheral as that series as well as the lord of the rings with the the rings of power uh netflix is seemingly gutting everything that they're doing but i mean they had the chance to build upon the cowboy bebop uh series and whatnot disney plus just pushes the everything is there room enough for a streaming service to pick up the rights to the the Riddick franchise and to really build upon this? Like, is there an appetite for this kind of world? I think there is. It it just takes, like, who's going to be the the streaming service to pick it up? Because, I mean, exactly like you're saying, they're taking all these other properties that have been successful. I mean, you could put successful for Riddick in quotation marks, I guess, but there's certainly an audience out there for it. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, who's like, is somebody actually going to do it? Here's hoping because I, I do think 
while it's a very different film from Pitch Black, it is a big story. It's a big world. And if you're a sci-fi fan, I think there there's a lot to, to you know, to take in with this. And if given the, the space to be flushed out, I think Chronicles of Riddick would make a very good series or novel series. Um, I, I definitely, I agree with you. This is not the 20% that the critics rated this. Um, I'm, I would actually sit there and say around the 65% audience score, I could easily see, you know, this kind of, you know, being in that neighborhood. And if given the space, flush out even more, I think you would see the critics actually maybe come along um, with better world building, but better backstory and a more flushed out environment. But it's come time. It has come time. So, who is your MVP of the Chronicles of Riddick? As much as I want to give it to Judy Dench, just by being Judy Dench and saying yes to this movie for whatever unfathomable reason, I have to give it to Sandy Newton because I I I love people taking big swings. I love people like having fun with a role. I love people understanding exactly what movie they're in and just going for it. And that is Sandy Newton in this movie. That is Sandy Newton just being like, okay, so I'm, I'm in this like movie. That's all about this world building and all about this stuff. I'm just going to go for it. I'm going to have fun and you have fun watching her because she is just so capital a acting in this movie i i i'm i can't really disagree with you she is for lack of a better term delicious in this in this role like she's eating up the scenery she is dancing across the screen she is you know she's and and she's a so different from everyone else who's you know drinking you know drank the the necromonger kool-aid here uh, in that she is ambitious and she is uh, cunning and she is using her husband, you know, to be like, I can only imagine what would happen if Vako took the, the necromonger throne, which, you know, Vin Diesel sat upon at the end of the film. Spoilers. Um, I can only imagine the continuing story of what Lady Vako would get up to. And as much as I loved her in this, she's not my MVP. That honor goes to Linus Roach as the purifier. There is something to be said about someone who has the wherewithal to to create an iconic death moment. Like the self-sacrifice, the, you know, basically he's left behind as the messenger to Riddick. He's questioning his choices, his faith, his actions. There is so much to the purifier and it's such a, a sympathetic portrayal from Linus Roche in this, like from, you know, the minute he's trying to convince everyone on Helios prime to, to commit to the necromonger faith. Um, like even the way he's talking to the people, you can see there's conflict in him. Um, as he's, as he walks out into the, the, the burning sun of the, of the prison planet, there's such a sadness in him for, not just what's ahead of him, but for everything that was from behind him. Linus Roach gave this film, you know, some would probably say more than it deserved, but it was a glorious role. Fanny Newton absolutely was a co a co contender for that role, but Linus Roach at my MVP for the Chronicles of Riddick. Colin, thank you so much for jumping on the show for the first time. Uh, open invitation. Anytime you ever want to come back, uh, hit me up, drop a movie, uh, and we'll watch it. And we'll dissect it. Colin, thank you so much for this. Thank you. I, I had a great time. I, I've recently discovered your show, and I've, I've been very much enjoying it. So I will most definitely be back. I, I have lots of other ideas. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. And to you, our listeners, thank you for listening to this episode of It's Not That Bad. Now, you guys know the drill. If you think there is a movie that you out there that is unfairly maligned or just so bad that there's no way in heck that we can find anything good to say about it, hit me up on Twitter at NotThatBadCast, and we will watch it. 
we will dissect it and we will find the good things to say because we are looking for those A grades and B movies. This is It's Not That Bad. I'm Jay. Until next time, everyone, take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.